So today, um, after lunch, I took a little walk and I looked up into the sky and it was so blue and beautiful. I, I hope you guys had a moment to notice that. And there was these gorgeous hawks just soaring and diving and I just stood there and it looked so magical. So I was like, so unreal and sparkly and, and beautiful. And I was reflecting what a beautiful and mysterious world we live in. And this experience that we all are having together is also mysterious and beautiful. And so tonight, um, I wanted to talk, the, the Hawks reminded me of this talk a little bit, because what I want to do is talk about wisdom. Uh, I talked about compassion the other night, and you need wisdom and compassion to soar, like those hawks were soaring, you know. If, some, if one of them had a wounded wing, they could survive maybe in a tree, but they couldn't soar across the sky in that way. It was so beautiful. So also tonight I want to talk about wisdom, but I want to talk about taking refuge, the wisdom in taking refuge. Um, so the Buddha is uh, quite unbelievable, the, the Buddha, this image of him here, Gautama Buddha. An incredible teacher, you know, born a prince, you know, then he renounced all of his wealth and his status and then went to the forest to practice and then did all these ascetic practices and then almost died, came to the understanding that there's a middle path in life that between the two extremes and uh, understood that and then sat under the Bodhi tree and became awakened. And his mind purified from greed, hatred, and delusion. That would be beautiful, huh? To have a mind purified of all greed, all hatred, and delusion. As Sylvia was talking in the instruction this morning, wow, I started to really think about that. So I'll just read you a little bit um, about the awakening, just as a way to set, set off the evening and just to have a talk about him and this idea of taking refuge. So it says that he walked to Bodhgaya, where on a full moon day on the fourth month of the lunar calendar, he seated himself beneath the Bodhi tree in the meditation posture and vowed not to rise from meditation until he had attained perfect enlightenment. With this determination, he entered the space-like concentration on the ultimate nature of all phenomena. As dust fell, Mara, the chief of all demons, or Maras in the world, tried to disturb Siddhartha's concentration by conjuring up many fearful apparitions. So this reminded me of all the movies, right? <laughs> so he manifested a host of terrifying demons, some throwing spears, some firing arrows, some trying to burn him with fire, some hurling boulders and even mountains at him. Through the force of his concentrations, the weapons, rocks, and mountains appeared to him as a rain of fragrant flowers, and the raging fires became like offerings of rainbow lights. Seeing that Siddhartha could not be frightened into abandoning his meditation, Mara tried instead to distract him by manifesting countless beautiful women. But Siddhartha responded by developing even deeper concentration. In this way, he triumphed over all the demons of this world, which is why he has subsequently became known as Conqueror Buddha. So he also was distracted, too, with doubt. They said that that was one of the last distractions that Mara actually appeared in front of him and said, what right do you have to even try to become enlightened? What, who do you think you are? And then in this great moment, the Buddha reaches down and touches the earth as his hand is doing now, pointed down, saying, no, no, the earth will bear witness to all my years of practice, all my years of perfecting this heart and mind. I do have a right to be free. We have the right to be free. And so after that moment, it said that his mind awakened. Then Siddhartha continued with his meditation until dawn, when he attained the Vajra-like concentration. With this concentration, which is the very last mind of a limited being, he removed 
the final veils of ignorance and in the next moment became a fully enlightened being. So I like the idea of the veils, the veils of ignorance. That's what we're doing is we're removing the veils. That is inspiring to me because he was a person who walked here. He breathed, he slept, he had back pain, he had fights with his father. He, you know, this is a, a being that is an inspiration and a possibility for us. So, Buddha is a state of mind. It means awakened one. You know, there's this, in the text, there's Buddhas uh, of the past, and there's also Buddhas of the future. I often uh, used to read about, and still do, about the future Buddha. They say a Buddha is going to be coming named Maitreya. And I thought this was unique to Tibetan Buddhism, but I was actually talking to some of the other teachers on the council, and they were saying, no, no, this is in all lineages. This idea there's another Buddha that will appear at some future point. His name Maitreya, and they already built statues of him, and there's mantras and all kinds of things, and uh, that his teaching will arise as soon as this Buddha's teachings die out. So no, no teachings, no path to freedom left. And they say when beings fall into complete darkness, this Buddha will take birth and set again the great wheel of teachings of truth and justice and freedom. You know, in some way, that's what the Buddha did, was that he didn't invent the Dharma, he didn't invent this path. He cleared away the obstacles and pointed here, this way. Freedom, left, lane, get here, go. <laughs> you know, and so that process of clearing away is difficult, but he did it out of compassion, his great wisdom. So, this path to freedom, and I was thinking about the veils, like, what are these veils? Why is it so difficult? You know, you sit here, you know, the instruction that Sylvia gave, everyone's laughing. Just be at ease in your natural self. Yes, that's it. What happens? Why can't we stay in that state? You know, I was laughing about that with some people in an interview. You know, why are the veils so compelling? What happens? We're at ease, we're in our natural state, and suddenly the darkness starts to descend, you know, a slow, uh, you know, descent into some state. Or as Sylvia said, we go into the movie theater, shut the door and forget it's a movie, completely forget it's a movie. You know, this is all that's real. This is what's happening. So those veils are so powerful. So clinging, clinging, that's part of the veil. I want to read you something that also is inspiring. It's from the Dhammapada, the words of the Buddha. He writes, there's no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. So free from fear and attachment, but how? Clinging, how do you not cling? <laughs> I think that's what I want to talk about tonight because that's the function of wisdom in the mind. It, it sort of comes and helps us let go. So this insight meditation that we're practicing, Vipassana, one of the translations is seeing things as they really are, not as they appear. So we're, we're practicing that, seeing things how they really are. So the Buddha, he turned this great wheel, you know, he set the teachings in motion, he became awake, he gave one of his first talks to his four friends or his five friends that he had been practicing with the Four Noble Truths. So let's look at that as the first, sort of the wisdom. So he set the wheel going. I love the image of the wheel. You know, it's like somewhere in the heavens, I go, it's turning, it's happening, you know. I always imagine this wheel. When we opened our meditation center in downtown Oakland, I kept saying, the wheel is turning now, even again, you know. Let's keep it going as more people seek places of refuge and more centers are built and people begin to 
go to them. The wheel is turning. I just love that image. To me, it's symbolic uh, in so many ways. And so the Buddha says, you know, pointed out the Four Noble Truths. I have to admit, it took me a long time to even like to hear talks about the Four Noble Truths. So he said, in life there's suffering. It's also translated as stress. And I'd go on these long retreats and I would think, why are they so obsessed with suffering here? I, and I was terribly suffering. You know, I was a mess. But every time they would bring it up, I can remember even being on a long retreat writing a note saying, you're all obsessed with suffering. <laughs> of course, it was unsigned, you know, and just left it. <laughs> can we talk about joy and love and light? Every talk was the suffering list. And I didn't get it, you know, I didn't get that I was suffering. I didn't, somehow I knew I felt it, but I didn't understand how talking about it was going to help. I thought that was making it worse. You know, I already know, you know, I'm aversive. I know I'm this, I know I'm that. How do I get free? But you first have to understand the problem before you can solve it. You know, so if you go to the doctor and you don't want to know what your diagnosis is, you can't participate in your healing. You're, you know, you have to understand this. So the Buddha's first truth is that there's suffering, there's stress. Suffering's a harsh word. You know, we think of suffering, we think of being in maybe prison, starving to death, suffering, ah. Oh. So we think, that doesn't relate to my life. You know, here I am in Marin, sitting at Spirit Rock, I'm not suffering, you know. But that word stress, that's a good one. There's a stress with life. I didn't want to hear that either. That bothered me. I thought, you mean, just because I'm born, there's stress? No, no, no. I've got to be able to know stress. You know, we don't want that. We don't want to feel that. But there's also something liberating when you feel stress or, or suffering. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything. I think that there's, what I've noticed in our culture, is this illusion that you can somehow get the perfect life where you don't feel any of that. So maybe if you look a certain way, you have a certain wealth, a certain level of education, that you have everything it takes to be happy, that you're not going to feel suffering or stress. It's not true. And so we put beautiful people on magazine covers, you know, nice little families. Even when you go pick out a frame, right? There's a, there's a fake family in there that look perfect. <laughs> like, that doesn't look like my family, you know? Not at all. Like, where's a real family on there? You know, there's this constant illusion, like we're all creating this idea that there's some kind of perfection where you won't feel stressed out, where you won't be, you know, if you have the perfect diet or you won't get sick and you drink wheatgrass every day and then you get a cold and you feel like a failure. <laughs> the body gets sick. This was really a revelation. I, I kept manipulating and manipulating, going, but why do I have to feel this? And it's a deep truth that it's the way it is. It's not what you want, but it's what you get when you're born. <laughs> it's what you get when you're born. You have this body, you have stress. You have this human experience that is stress. It's also beauty, but it's also stress. So I was talking to one of the other teacher trainees, uh, a beautiful teacher named Pascal. Some of you might know him. And we were talking about this delusion about how everybody masks the suffering, you know. Like, and he was talking about bell peppers. And he was like, you know, you go to the supermarket, all the bell peppers are perfect, but where are all those bell peppers that don't look like that? <laughs> there must be millions of ones with holes in them, round ones, but they don't want those. Just the perfect one that we all say, this is how a bell pepper should look. And then he goes, well, you know what they do with them? They take all those and make sauce out of it. And I was like, oh yeah. And he goes, then on the front, they put on the front of the sauce, beautiful bell peppers, right? <laughs> And that was an analogy of what we do, right? All, our whole culture is doing that. You know, our whole culture is doing that constantly, like masking this, sticking this on that. Let's take that away. Let's nip this. And it's just, it's just funny when you look at it. So there's something that I love now about this first noble truth, like, oh, yeah, suffering, stress. I, I can see that life includes this, and somewhere deep inside of me, I completely accept that now. So the second one is the origin is the clinging. So I like the translation of tanha that we've been using that Larry mentioned and Anna talked about because it's not just desire, it's that thirst, it's that crave, it's that extra 
clinging on to something. So the origin is clinging, attachment, craving. So that's the origin. That's very interesting. Suffering, the origin is, is attachment, craving. So then the Buddha goes further. We'll go back to the second one a little bit later. The third one is that there's complete freedom. Now this, I don't understand. Oh, I overlooked this one. All I ever got stuck on was the first one when I would hear these talks. They're suffering. Uh, the rest of the talk, I couldn't hear. <laughs> Everyone would say, there's an end. But I never felt that that could be true for me. It was kind of the Buddha when he reached down and touched the earth, right? That doubt. Like, it, could I be free? I mean, really, honestly, ask yourself. There's a potential that you could be free. That's your birthright. But we don't really believe that. And that was the final veil the Buddha had to go through, that doubt. Mara attacked him with, you don't even have the right. And he said, no, no, I do have the right. So I think the third noble truth, I actually had to come to a realization that this is also my right to be free. That I could have a purified mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is possible. And not only possible, when I think I started to have faith in it, I started to see my own mind get better and better. And really, I'm a testament to the Dharma. My family laughs and tells me, you should do infomercials for Spirit Rock. <laughs> because when you were younger, you know, there was so much confusion and so much chaos. And over the years, it has been so different. I've seen this practice purify my heart and mind. I've become so much happier with the quality of my mind. Most of my thoughts, most, are good. They're about helping their bodhicitta, it's compassion. Yeah, I still have moments of reactivity, but the day, the moment-to-moment -moment quality of my mind is so much better that I love being in my mind most of the time. And the rest of the time I face whatever's there. Okay, look, what's happening? But it's really, it really works. You know, so maybe this is my little infomercial for Spirit Rock in some funny way. <laughs> um, so then he says, you know, that's the third noble truth. Complete freedom, cessation is possible. Not a little free, not a little bit, but complete, total freedom is possible for every human being. And then how do you do it? The Eightfold Path. So through this practice, wise view. I use, uh, it's often translated as right view, but I use wise, uh, that's another translation. Wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. <coughs> so basically what we're practicing here, this what we're doing. All of these are the wheel, you could say spokes are the wheel. So let's go back to number two. So we all hear many talks, clinging, clinging, it's the root, it's the root. Why can't we stop clinging? It's so hard. Those veils are so hard. So wisdom, this, this quality of wisdom, it removes the veils of ignorance. And then we effortly, effortlessly begin to let go. So it's the quality in the mind that sees clearly. Often you see the Tibetan image of Manjushri, this great uh, bodhisattva, and he has the sword of wisdom until he's chopping at the delusions, you know. That's his job to come in. So you know when you're in the middle of that thought train that you know is going nowhere but down, wisdom comes in and goes, chop, let's go back to the breath. That would be a little more helpful here. It's that quality that begins to wake up and go, this movie, not so good. You know, Sylvia, she was doing the little um, image of her walking down Broadway and almost going into that movie and going, no, I already saw that one, you know, back out. That's wisdom. It goes, you've already done that. Let's stay on the path. Enlightenment is 80th Street, right? So she's on, what, 42nd? So she's heading on her way. You know, we're all marching down the journey together. On 70th. 70th, yeah. Yeah, definitely on 70th. <laughs> I would say that, uh, definitely. So one of the ways, um, one of the things, and I'm going to talk about wisdom, but until we are enlightened, a thing that is of great benefit is to take refuge. You know, you're in the hospital. I use this analogy. As a great support, we take refuge until we're fully enlightened. 
Until we're fully in line, we stay with the doctor, in the hospital, taking the treatment, with the other patients, until we're cured. I really look at this as a, through a medical model. Like, our minds are already beautiful. There's something veiling it. Slowly but surely, it's getting cleared out. So that's the power of the refuge, and I'll talk about that, but I want to talk a little bit more about wisdom, because um, there's wisdom that can help, and wisdom in taking refuge itself. So when the Buddha talks about wisdom in the Theravadan perspective, what he noticed about this human experience, you know, as he was in his meditation, he noticed that there's these characteristics about being human. There's these qualities that seem uh, predominant. So, uh, according to the tradition, after much meditation, the Buddha concluded that everything in the physical world and everything in the mind is marked by these three characteristics. So, as human beings in this realm, we experience them. When we talk about insight, we're talking about insight into these three characteristics. So, the first one we kind of talked about was stress. The Buddha said, if you're here, you got stress. So an example is like, when you, if you have fire, a characteristic of fire is heat. So being just human, being born, you're going to have stress. You're walking along, you know, we talked about that, you stub your toe. Who knows why that happens? Your car has a flat tire, your kids, you know, whatever. Everything uh, comes and goes with that. The second thing he talked about, and this is the one I'm really going to kind of highlight a bit tonight, and this is impermanence. This is impermanence. And um, this refers not only to the fact that all conditioned things eventually cease to exist, but that all conditioned things are in a constant state of flux. It's constantly moving. Constantly moving. So I had a huge insight into this. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it because I, I thought it was funny in a way. I was doing about a three-day retreat with a friend of mine up in a cabin, and we had wind, and we brought food, and we were just going to sit, and uh, mostly we were just going to do a sitting practice and do some yoga. And uh, after a few hours, the insight, I looked at him as he was stretching, and suddenly the insight in my mind arose, and it was like this. It said, hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. And I saw that everything in that moment just stopped because I realized that when I saw him and I saw this moment that it's hello in this moment there's a meeting and at some point there'll be a goodbye a separation and that everything in life we're meeting hello and we're saying goodbye and some relationships people get married and have kids and they dance together and then it's goodbye and they're out on their own path and this group of people you all said hello and then at the end of the retreat, it's goodbye, and you might never see each other again. You share this beautiful moment. Some of you may see each other, but you may not. So it's this constant, that's how life is. And I had such a deep insight. Everything in my being was shocked, like, hello, goodbye, every moment. Hello, goodbye. And it stayed with me. And whenever my, my friend and I, when I sat down and I was telling him about it, and he was like, okay, you know, and I was in tears going, hello, goodbye. You don't understand. Hello, goodbye, do you? And he didn't. You know, it was my insight at that moment. Uh, but that's okay. I really, I took that back to the cushion, and there was a part of me that was freer after that because I also, not only did I understand it, I also respected and loved the moments that I had with people. Moments that are just standing outside my house and just, hi, you know, who knows who that person is? Goodbye, good luck with your life, you know? All these people in here, hello, you know, you'll go and we'll all say goodbye. And there's a beauty in that. And so that's kind of some of the, that was one of my first insights, but that stood out a lot. So St. John of the Cross, he says, tenderly I now touch all things knowing one day we will part. One day we will part. Change or impermanence is the essential characteristic of all phenomenal existence. We cannot say of anything that it's lasting. For even while we're saying this, even in this moment, things are changing. All is fleeting, the beauty of a flower, the bird's melody, the bee's hum, a sunset's glory. 
everything is changing. Everything is changing. Pema Chodron, uh, one teacher I love very, very much, she says this. Um, she's the American Buddhist nun, and, and in her book, In the Places That Scare You, she talks about uh, impermanence a little bit, so I want to read a little passage. She says, We know that all is impermanent. We know that everything wears out. Although we can buy this truth intellectually, emotionally we have deep-rooted aversion to it. We want permanence. We expect permanence. Our natural tendency is to seek security. We believe we can find it. To put it concisely, we suffer when we resist the noble and irrefutable truth of impermanence and death. We expect that what is always changing should be graspable and predictable. We are born with a craving for resolution and security. It governs our thoughts, our words, our actions. We are like people in a boat that is falling apart, trying to hold on to the water. So the change. But also, because that's okay, that's a little bit of the hard edge of impermanence, right? There's also a beauty in impermanence. Whatever mind state you're in, it wears and now it's gone, right? Everything's also being born. Things are dying, but being born. There's an excitement in, in impermanence, a kind of wild ride that you can get on. What's going to happen now if you kind of get into the flow of it? I've come to actually find impermanence after the hard edge to also be exciting. Impermanence brings us hope. Who would have thought someone would have, we would have elected Obama? That's impermanence, right? Things change in a big way really quickly. And uh, that's also true. Impermanence embodies the spirit of freedom. It denies the control of the gods or some kind of control happening. You know, uh, impermanence shatters the concept of predestination. You know, down today, up tomorrow. You know, you see those stories of people who win the lottery. Some guy recently, I think he was a janitor, you know, this like 70-year-old African-American man, $100 million. That's impermanence. (laughs) There's something that if you get in the flow about it, life becomes exciting. It's like what the Buddha said, to live, know the sweet joy of living in the way. The way is, I don't know what's going to happen. We really don't know. And there's some mystery to that, that is, it can shake you up, but also can, it feels exciting in some way. It's always changeable, it's malleable, everything's shape-shifting, we're changing, it's changing, the environment's changing. So this was a big teaching uh, that the Buddha gave. In fact, this was one of the final teachings that he did give. There's a beautiful sutta called the Parinirvana Sutta, where this great man died. You know, the Buddha it almost reminds me of a great tree falling, like great, uh, a great sound resonated with his death, you know. And he was under these trees, and all these people were paying respect to him as he was beginning to pass away. And he says, as a final teaching to the disciples, impermanent, subject to change, are all component things. Strive on with heedfulness. Drive on. So that was the final, one of the final words of the Buddha. So also I was really inspired. uh, Sylvia, I wish she was here tonight. Okay, I'm going to tell you where she really is so you guys can have mudita for her. Jack took her to the opera to see one of her favorite shows. (laughs) Uh, So uh, she felt bad about missing my talk. I was like, go, Sylvia, go, please. I'd be so happy that you two get to have an evening. So she put on a gown after and went off to the ball. Uh, So I thought that was great. I was happy for her. Um, So one of the things that struck me about Sylvia, I, I became a Sylvian devotee, just like many people. Her heart is so beautiful, as all the teachers. Uh, but Sylvia was telling a story. I was here uh, about maybe six or seven years ago. I was doing a one-month Metro retreat in January. And uh, this is how I know that Sylvia definitely is on 70th Street on her path, you know. <laughs> um, so she was talking about being very young, and she had four children. And Sylvia had her children... Um, they were all, all four of them 
were under six years old at the same time. So imagine four kids, she was at home. Uh, her husband was away or not home that day. And she said all four of them were having meltdowns. It was just crying and this, and you imagine four kids, two, three, four, you know, just, and she said, they were just all melting down. There was nothing she could do. And so she just sat there crying and wanting this and wanting that, not, you know. And she just started, she went into her kitchen and she got out a can of paint. And she, in the middle of them having meltdowns, she started painting, this too shall pass. <laughs> in Hebrew, right? This too, it's like she had the wisdom even then to recognize this isn't, all my kids are screaming, crying, but this is impermanent. So it's not going to last. This is something. And then, of course, as she's up there painting very beautifully, all the kids calm down. Mommy, what are you doing? I'm writing this phrase. What does that mean? Then she turned it into a Dharma teaching, you know, moment. <laughs> that is not how my house was, you know. That is definitely not how our house was when we were screaming and crying, you know. And I, after that, I just bowed to her so deeply, like, wow, you were so amazing to be able to juggle that and have that understanding of impermanence, to not react to all, every emotion. The Buddha, when he was sitting in his path under the tree, or when he was sitting for those years, he said, all these emotions are coming and going. Happy, sad, bored, restless, you know, interested, lust, everything is just one, da, 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 nothing is lasting, nothing is lasting. Thoughts, nothing is lasting, one movie after another, which one's the true one? Right? He saw this impermanence so deeply. We cling and we suffer because we don't understand that it's all changing. And this clinging is, uh, I could see this so much in myself, this wanting to hold on all the time and not understanding that it's changing, not understanding endings of things. Things just end. Sometimes they end abruptly. Somebody leaves you. They're gone. The end of that has happened the end of a job, the end, I think we suffer so much because we think, well, I was a good person, why did that happen to me? Why, why? I used to say, why, why, why? It's just the nature of it. It's a characteristic of this being human. The Buddha said, you're here, this is impermanent. We're here and we could be gone any moment. Death is certain, time unknown. That's a deep truth right there, time unknown. So. What are we doing with our life? Impermanence begins to focus that. What, is, what am I doing? What, I have these moments. How, how could I live them? What's valuable? And where do I go for refuge, understanding that life is stress, some parts of life, and everything's impermanent? Where do you go for refuge? That's one of the questions um, that I'd like uh, to talk about. So everything is changing all day long. Emotions, what our wants are. Did you notice how fickle you are here? <laughs> One minute you like this, you love the sun, now it's too hot, now get me out of the sun. Then you like the, you know what I mean? We're endlessly going back and forth. So Pema Chodron, she also has this practice, um, impermanence, remembering impermanence is part of her practice, but she does this thing, I'll just read, she does every day called the five remembrances. So she says these five lines to herself every day. She says, I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I am the nature to have ill health. I cannot escape having ill health. I am the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. And she has one final reflection. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. So, impermanence is a big one, a big insight. If you start to tune into it, start to see how it's changing everything. So the third characteristic, so the Buddha pointed this out, you come here, you get stress. <laughs> it's not all bad, you know, we work with it. There's a lot of joy too. Stress, impermanence. The third thing that he saw so clearly that we cling to and what's a characteristic is the idea of self. 
so Anna so beautifully talked about this and many people were led in that exercise and had you know insight into that no self it's very complex teaching in a way I think in some way all the Buddhist teachings make a lot of sense to us, right? Compassion, love, yeah, I get that in the moment, yeah, no self, what? You know, it's that one that goes, I'm not sure I understand that. But it's at the root of our suffering. It's one of the big veils that's there. So let me, let me just read a little passage about why this understanding leads to tremendous freedom, this insight. But it's an insight, you know, these come out of a deep awakening. It can't really stay in the mind. You can kind of think about it and ponder it a little bit, but it comes out of deep seeing. Once we identify, this is actually from Eckhart Tolle. He says, once we identify, imagine, or conceive of ourselves as an entity, we immediately create a schism, a separation between ourselves and the people and the things around us. Once we have this false concept of self, we respond to people around us with desire and aversion. This concept of self actually begins to destroy all peace. Seeing that the self is the source and the cause of suffering, and seeing that the rejection of the self is the cause of the end of suffering, this is the true dawn of wisdom. So I often like to use uh, ego too, uh, you know, the ego, the ego, the self, the idea that we're separate. Another Tibetan teacher was trying to uh, uh, explain this idea of self, and he's like, imagine a beautiful beach, right? And you have all the sand on the beach, and all the sand, when you look at the sand, it all looks like one, right? <laughs> one big, long piece, but when you come up to it, it's all very fine particles, you know, you can pick up one grain. And he said, it's almost like there's one grain of sand that leaps up and goes, I'm not a part of this anymore. <laughs> nope, I'm over here. And then in that pulling away, what do you feel? Intense loneliness, right? So we suffer with this loneliness too, because we pulled away. It's almost like we pulled ourselves out of the universe and cut ourselves off going, I'm over here, you're all over there. You know, and this idea that somehow I become separate that is a source of tremendous suffering. That is the source of tremendous suffering. When I was a, very young, I was fascinated. I had this strange fascination with Adam and Eve. Because um, I was interested in the Bible. I didn't uh, study it at any length. I did a little bit in college. I went to a Catholic uh, university. But I um, was fascinated by the story of Adam and Eve. I kept going, why did they fall out of Eden? Can someone tell me why you know, they had this beautiful life? What did they do? And if I thought about it, they said, oh, you know, they eat, ate from the fruit of uh, you know, good and evil or whatever, you know, the story. And, and it's like, oh, they became separate. They started to develop this sense of self. At first, they was, there was oneness, right? And they were naked together, and then they became self-conscious. That was one of the big lines in the Bible, self-conscious. And they begin to put on clothes, and they begin to be afraid. And it was almost like in that, and immediately they fell out. So that was always interesting to me. I was like, oh, this sense of self. It's just something to think about. The Buddha said that this human experience, there is no self. This is a characteristic of this. So the wisdom faculty once we begin to practice more and more, these insights into these three become clear and clear, and they become the sword, because we no longer cling. If you know something's impermanent, you don't cling to it as much. There was a story, just to give you an idea about how this clinging is so irrational, there was a story, um, I don't watch TV, and I try to stay away from all media, because it just gets kind of uh, hard, because it's so negative. But I happened to see the story when I was checking my email. And there was a story about a billionaire. This is, you guys might have read about this or saw it. This billionaire, I think he's one of the richest people in the world, is in prison right now for stealing a couple million dollars. <laughs> and I was thinking, why would you, you have millions of dollars? Like billions, what would make you risk your, uh, your whole life, your freedom? But it's just that clingy, that, that kind of reaching out. So 
taking refuge. So that's why refuge is so important. So what do we do? This is kind of the state that we're in, right? We're we're somewhat in the hospital, right? We're clearing our obstacles, we're clearing. I mean, in some ways, I always think this place is kind of hospital-like, right? We all have our rooms, you know, we all, (laughs) you know, we're getting treated, we check in with the teachers, how's the treatment going? Oh, my mind's this, my mind's that. Here's what the debt today, take this, take two of these. You know, do metta, and I'll bring you back to balance and then continue, you know. But it's a hospital for our minds, you know. I think it's okay to look at it like that. It's like, you know, in some sense of it, I feel sick sometimes when I'm so out of the moment. You know, I can feel that sickness. So what we do is we, we take refuge. So... What is refuge and why is it valuable? Why is it valuable? So the Buddha said when he had his moment of enlightenment, or what was uh, said that he said, obviously, he sat under the Bodhi tree and he said to himself as he sat there in his great bliss, I can't teach this. Who would understand this? Right? So I'll just sit under the tree and relax in my, you know, blissed out state of realization. And then the story goes, the legend, there's these gods that came down and said, no, 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 you have to teach, you have to teach. People will get it, they'll get it. And he's like, I don't think they'll get this. They will, they will. So then his heart opened, he's like, okay. So then he went out and 45 years taught, talk after talk, place after place, wandering with all the monks and the nuns, giving discourse after discourse uh, for compassion's sake, to help people wake up. So... If we don't understand the truth, what is, is we wander in what's called samsara. And this is funny because when Anna was giving her talk about how we have the same thoughts 93% of the time, so we basically, we have the same thoughts, we create the same thing, we have the same thoughts, we create the same, there's a samsaric to that. Have you noticed how your own mind can feel like it's the same thing, you know? So samsara is this wandering in confusion a wandering in confusion. And so we can take refuge when we begin to wake up. My first retreat, when I arrived, I was a mess. I had just ended a relationship. This was about 12 years ago. And I was living in Northern California. And I drove down in my car. And so we had just broken up. I had a, a, a whole bunch of uh, my belongings. And I was heading to a 10-day retreat in the desert. And I was crying the whole way. I had never meditated for longer than a couple hours. And I almost wrecked the car many times. I was in a complete state of chaos, inner, and everything was dissolving, and everything seemed like chaos. And I can remember coming up to the registration table and almost fainting. It felt like, hi, let me in, here I am. (laughs) And it was like a refuge. I fell down, like, help, here, where's my room? Please help me, you know? There's a sense of that. You arrive at retreats. Have you ever noticed that you come in a state that is intense? Like, here I am, falling down. Some people coming from hospitals. Some people coming from, you know, not knowing how their life is. It's a refuge. And I felt that the first hour they did the introduction talk. I said, oh, I'm in the right place. Thank, thank the Lord I'm here. I need, you know, I remember thinking, I need help and bad. <laughs> And so I started to see that these places where people can come, that I'm not the only one who came in that state. You know, after the end of the retreat, many people were arriving in that place. Some people just lost jobs. Some people, various stages of life were seeking refuge. So that's what this is, is we seek refuge with the truth. The first refuge is the Buddha. We take refuge in our own Buddha nature, that we're already perfected. It's veils hiding that. You know, so you can take refuge in the historical Buddha, thinking, wow, what a great being. He's a model, a living example of the potential that we have. He's saying, you can do this. Look at me. You can too. Freedom is possible. Here's the way. So we take refuge in our own ability to wake up. Take refuge in that. And so the second jewel, the second refuge, is taking refuge in the Dharma. So I like to use Dharma or think of Dharma in many ways. You could call it the present moment. We take refuge in just the simple truth, what's happening. Also, Dharma, 
we can talk about it as far as the whole collection of Buddhist teachings, all the lineages, Zen and Tibetans, all the great books that are there, all the translated archives, everything. Also, the collection of the whole teachings is also considered the Dharma. The collections from all the great masters, every living being who has awakened. It wasn't just Buddha. He's one awakened one. There's been thousands, potentially millions of people who have awakened their heart. All those teachings. And love and compassion itself. We take refuge in that. That's also the Dharma love and compassion. So we take refuge there. And then the, the third jewel, and this is called the triple gem, you know, a gem is something very valuable, is the Sangha. So there's this little quote I like uh, where the Buddha was talking to his cousin Ananda, and many of the suttas are these great little uh, banters between Buddha and Ananda. Ananda was his cousin and also his attendant uh, for about 25 years of the Buddha's life. So Ananda was asking all these questions. He's actually very beloved to me, Ananda. He used to teach the nuns, and he was always making these mistakes, you know, all the time, in sincerity, and the Buddha was always correcting him, and so there's all these little exchanges. So um, Ananda asks the Buddha, he says, um, he says, noble one, I hear that uh, noble friends are half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, noble friends are all of the holy life, all of the holy life. And so I didn't see this as a gem that much when I was younger, but I see it as a huge gem now. You could not do this retreat without everybody here. Like this Sangha created it. We have people here chopping vegetables for the soup. We have people cleaning the bathrooms. We have people sweeping this floor. We all created this, all of our hearts and our intentions, the teachers, are part of the Sangha, all these people here that get up at six in the morning with you, come sit in the hall. If we gave you the schedule and said, here you go, here's this for the next nine days, you couldn't, it would be, you could do it, it would be difficult though. But the support of the whole community, we do it together. That's the beauty of Sangha. So many of my friends have been such an inspiration and these great teachers that I get the beauty of being able to be with. All the conversations I have with Sylvia, they're priceless. That's the Sangha. It's like when we're all together, we support each other in our awakening. We go to advice, inspiration, help, support, love. There's so much that the Sangha, all these people here together practicing freedom. That's rare in this world to have a group of people all in a total alignment, so much so that my practice supports you and you support me and we'll get free together. We're all sick, just healing. So the Sangha is a jewel. And then the Sangha even goes farther than that, expands to all the people right now practicing in monasteries, all the monastics, His Holiness over there, and to, you know, all the beings in Tibet, His Holiness in India, all the communities all over the world of people practicing. There's probably someone right now ringing a bell, going into a hall, doing a bow, sitting. That's also part of the Holy Sangha, the sacred Sangha, the gem. And then all the beings who have died, who have left writings and teachings pointing to way, poets, they're also part of the Sangha. So all together, that makes a powerful refuge. Where do you go when you need help? To the Sangha, to your spiritual community. It's been so valuable to me over the last years. I highly underrated this, but now it's everything. Sangha, Sangha, Sangha. I talk about it a lot in Oakland. The power of the Sangha. Respect the people around you. They're your beloved community. This is our beloved community. So that's the triple gem. We take refuge in the Buddha, our own Buddha nature, the Dharma, the present moment, all the teachings pointing to the way, the Sangha, the beauty of the Sangha, uh, who practice with us, hold us up together, their strength. The story that Sylvia told about the man who was in front of her at a retreat, that she held her up in some way, who was sitting so up, and, but then he left and she didn't get to say bye, and she still thinks about him. <laughs> you know, he helped her be just by sitting and being strong and present. Who knows who you're helping just by showing up? 
When someone else is like, I can't bear it, I can't go in the hall, you see everyone walking go, I can make it, they're doing it, okay, someone, you know, you don't feel like walking, 10 people are doing walking practice, all right, standing, stepping, lifting, standing, and then, you know, that's the support of that, it's so beautiful in some way. The final thing also, just to remind you a little bit about Buddha nature before I close, is that um, the story uh, to take refuge in your own Buddha nature. This is another story that Jack tells that I like a lot. So Jack was talking about, uh, some of you may have heard this many times, but I just love it because it's an it's a example of our true nature. So there is a statue in Thailand that was discovered some years ago. And the statue was overlooked for many years because it had been covered in some kind of brown veneer paint. And a monk happened to be walking by, and the legend goes he saw something glittering, and he, he went over and he examined it. And uh, it was, an, I think, an 18-karat gold Buddha statue. It was quite large. Uh, and so this was a shock to the little monastery who had the statue, right? Like, oh my gosh, that's huge, 18-karat gold Buddha. And obviously they set about restoring it and getting off the veneer. And what had happened was they thought that they were going to be invaded. And so they covered it up and then forgot that it was covered, right? <laughs> That's how we are, like we're golden underneath. And there's this veneer, and sometimes that scrubbing is painful. You know, it's like scrubbing ourselves clean to show that gold underneath, but the gold is there. That brown veneer did not hurt the gold at all. They cleaned it off, and now it's brilliant and shining and a point of uh, inspiration for the Thai people in that area. They come and admire that statue and its story about it. So in some way, that's how we are. So I just want to end this talk about uh, this and read a little bit of a poem to you. So it's a very short poem, but I like it. And in some ways, I think I'm just so proud of everyone that's here. I'm proud of myself and the teachers and everybody for being here. It's really, uh, it's really inspiring to me. So, The Breeze at Dawn. This is a Rumi poem. That's the name of the poem, The Breeze at Dawn. The Breeze at Dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are moving back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So, thank you for your attention. And tonight we'll do a reflection, a traditional reflection practice on the three jewels. So, see you this evening.